0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Kai Wortmann, working in philosophy of education at the University of Tübingen. And I'm here today with Anne-Marie Moll, who is Professor of Anthropology of the Body at the University of Amsterdam. We want to talk about her new book with the great and simple title, Eating in Theory. In this book, Anne-Marie asks how a closer look on eating can transform our ways of conceiving what it is to be a human. As we taste, chew, swallow, digest, and excrete, our food changes both ourselves and our environment. By drawing on extensive fieldwork at food conferences, research labs, healthcare facilities, restaurants, and our own kitchen table, the book offers possibilities to rethink central concepts in our philosophical tradition, such as being, doing, and knowing. The book is highly inspiring and very elegantly written, so I'm really happy to have the author here. Anna-Marie, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. Uh, thank you for having me.
0: Before talking about the book, can you maybe start off by telling us what you what brought you into anthropology?
1: Yes. Uh, well, this is a long time ago. I was a student of medicine in it was 76, 77, uh, no, yeah, in the 1976, 1977, and I was studying medicine because I wanted to understand what a human being is, and given my secondary school background, I was easily convinced that then it was good to start at the natural science side, at the biology science side, but as I was in medical school, I had the feeling that somehow I was learning a lot of facts, but I was not encouraged to think. So in my second year as a student, I also started to study philosophy. And because there I wanted to learn to think. And after a few years in medical school, I I would have gone to, to into medical training, into training to becoming a doctor. And I thought it was too difficult to both be a doctor and think about it. So I shifted. There was some sort of escape program in medical school where one could make one's own master's program, uh, design one's own education, so to speak. And I did that, and I wanted to, instead of studying medicine as in becoming a doctor, study medicine as in researching what was going on in healthcare. So I made for myself, I designed a uh, uh, a sort of set of uh, programs to read anthropology, sociology, history of medicine, while at the same time doing field work in healthcare. So I became a sort of amateur uh, anthropologist because I was supervised by medical doctors, by a general professor of general practice who was so generous as to allow me to do this uh, completely. How to say this weird extracurriculum <laughs> curriculum, and uh, at the same time, I also continued studying philosophy. So I, I came into this field in a slightly oblique way, and then afterwards, uh, after I had my master's, I I took real philosophy classes, so to speak, in uh, sort of real anthropology classes and real sociology classes, but on a PhD level, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I was really uh, how to say that? Um, taken over by by not no longer resting on the biology and natural science signs of things, but wanting to understand also that wanting to understand medical knowledge and the way it came into being and functioned uh, in socially. So that's the story. And at the same time, by the way, uh, what I discovered was the then emerging social studies of science and technology and uh, that was sort of the field that allowed me to uh, where I learned a lot about how I, how one might do that and so my anthropology has never been an anthropology of faraway places but an anthropology turning into uh, western modern societies Um, But in those societies, I started in healthcare settings and I later widened out from that.
0: And can you remember the moment when it became clear to you that you need to write a book on eating?
1: Well, that's a lot later um, because, uh, and and there is not one moment. These things are gradual processes, uh, certainly in my life. Uh, So I had written uh, a thesis in the 80s. On um, the, the the way healthcare in the Netherlands had shifted its terms, uh, and especially general practitioners and and mental healthcare. Then I had written a book in the 90s on knowledge in the hospital and the way uh, different technologies allowed for different ways of knowing and different ways of acting. And then I had written in the new century a book on. How the process of medicine is not a linear matter of one choice after the other, but is a sort of iterative tinkering process of care. So, but in that later book, in that care book, so there were all kinds of transitions between these projects. Uh, as I was writing the care book, I did field work with people with type 1 diabetes. And it struck me that the way that they talked about bodies and the way they lived bodies was metabolic was all the time about a sort of negotiation about how much one eats how much injection uh, how how much insulin is needed for the amount of carbohydrates and there was this constant negotiation between effort uh, exercise uh, and this was sort of a calculation from the outside that bodies without type 1 diabetes do from the inside. But it was a whole metabolic uh, body that, that was practiced in those settings, or that is practiced, by the way, in those settings. And it struck me that what I read about bodies, both in philosophy and in social science literature, didn't attend very much to this metabolic way of living with one's body and was rather... Invested in either perceiving or moving or both, and what in a medical way one one would call a neuromuscular body. So it's about the neural system and the muscular system. But that this whole there was a deep neglect, uh, I I thought, in both philosophy and the social sciences, uh, and also actually history of 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 medicine of the of the metabolic way of living and understanding bodies. So that's when I thought, well, if I start studying eating, um, that might really be an interference and might allow me to make a shift in this uh, this way of understanding bodies uh, that is so dominant in philosophy and the social sciences.
0: And am I right uh, that this also connects to the title of your book? Eating in theory, in contrast to, for example, a theory of eating.
1: Yes, yes. So my from the start, it was not my object to uh, indeed theorize eating and to say, okay, we know, let's try to find out what eating is. But it was my object to say, well, if in as far if we know what eating is, what does that mean for? Uh, the philosophical schemes or for the theoretical schemes that we use when we do all kind of other intellectual work. Indeed, eating in theory. I thought eating would, uh, good understandings of eating would really shift theoretical reflexes and theoretical repertoires.
0: And can you offer maybe one example to start with uh, for one of these uh, shifts that maybe struck you the most?
1: Well, I'm not going to make a hierarchy between my lovely chapters, okay, sorry. but but I can I can give one example, uh, and let me give the example of the chapter on being. Uh, if if you have a a body that is, uh, if you have an understanding of a body as seeing, hearing, and moving, it's quite an achievement of the body to see, hear, and move, th- for instance, through a room without bumping into tables. And, uh, uh, and it's also you can understand a body, so you can try to theorize how bodies do that and what it means and how you have to be an integral body to be able to do that. But as soon as you talk about eating, uh, it's not just one coherent, integral body, you can see all kinds of differences in eating, it's really very important that you swallow, and that the food gets into the esophagus and the stomach rather than into the lungs, because if you have food in the lungs, you get all kind of nasty uh, diseases. You may get pneumonia, for instance, from the lungs not being able to cope with food. That's not what they're designed to cope with, or what they're designed, but what they're what they're able to cope with. So the relation of the seeing and moving body through the world outside is very different than the way the eating body relates to the world outside and and this goes even further if you then go out of that room and you go and walk in the surroundings and and there's actually very interesting um, f- a good a- anthropological work uh, on how bodies can move through their surroundings and uh, but but of course if you think about eating It is not my body that moves through the landscape and through the surroundings. All kind of surrounding things, things that first surrounded me, move through my body. I eat the apple, uh, swallow it, partly digest it, and partly excrete it. And that's a very different relation to surroundings. And if we push that, and if we indeed take me, uh, not not me personally, but a high mother and subject living in an urban setting, it's not simply surroundings as in a circle around me. Let's say if I walk for five kilometers, I have a land around me that I walk through. It's not, not very large land. But if I eat, my apple may come from France. It may come from New Zealand. And the coffee that I had this morning for, uh, with my breakfast may come from Ethiopia or Vietnam, and and bits and pieces of those lands enter my body, and then also uh, when I go when I excrete them, uh, I'm attached to a sewage system that flushes out my excrements, my urine and features uh, out into the world, and who knows where that ends. So the the being of the human in inner surroundings is very different if you think through moving and seeing than if you think through eating. This, this eating is a more uh, diver, divided body and it's a more spread out body and it relates to the surroundings not by being in them, but by exchanging stuff with them, by transforming the matter. So in Dutch you have the word that Stoffwissele, it's like the German word, uh, 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 it exists in German as well in a variation, which doesn't exist in English, but it's really transforming stuff, transforming matter. And that's what it is to be a eating body. And that, if we shift that to theory, so being becomes something different, it's not an entity in surroundings, but it's a constant transformation, incorporation, ex-cooperation.
0: Yeah. And and one of the, so there, there are of course, several uh, interesting aspects in, in, in this, but uh, one, the the first that struck me was uh, that actually the question when the food is inside my body Mm -hmm. is a very open debate. Mm -hmm. So, so the, 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 uh, for me as a, as a, person who never deeply thought about this mm-hmm. it 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 uh, always was very clear that e- either if i take the food in my mouth and chew it or if i swallow it then it's inside me mm-hmm. but you you um point out how several uh, people working with um people who have uh, swallowing problems have very different understandings of what counts as um I don't know if if that's correct but successful intake of of food.
1: Yeah, well let me say interestingly that is not a debate. It's okay. really it's really a, how to say that it's not a debate in that there could be one of them winning. It's mm-hmm. really what is relevant about intake uh, for uh this is especially in healthcare situations what is relevant uh, for a person in a particular situation, changes what, when the food is inside outside. Let let me take one step back before answering that. I earlier said it was not my uh, my quest to know what eating is, but to ch- to shift theory from eating. At the same time, of in, in as far as I'm trained as an anthropologist, I was not going to do uh, uh, let's say. Uh, a cat and pipe type of example example generating philosophy, but really studying at the same time seriously what eating is. And the only way to study properly what something like that is, as far as I'm concerned, is to stop knowing what it is, to, to block one's own knowledge and to really look what eating is in diverse practices without expecting a single answer and and really expecting that in different situations and different settings, eating is not the same, but eating is something different. Now, this really goes also for the question What, when food is in the body. Indeed, you can say food is in the body when you close your mouth. Uh, and that is really relevant for, for instance, a person for whom it's difficult to put, put food in their mouth. If you have mm. a person with dementia, they, they, for them it can be really difficult to do that. It's not obvious, certainly not, to pick up a fork and to move the fork to the mouth also for some people with hemiplegia who who's, who no longer have motor control that, that mm-hmm. is difficult. So then there's the swallowing and that again is is really difficult for people who have uh, uh, neuro- neurological problems so that they cannot steer their muscles properly. Uh, I, I, I did a bit of research there with people with hemiplegia who have to learn to swallow again uh, so so that's a second entrance. And then, uh, what also happens is, once food is in the in the bowels or in the stomach and in the bowels, that doesn't mean that it will also be taken up in the bloodstream. uh, To to for in an embryological uh, and anatomical reasoning, the whole pipe system, the esophagus, the stomach, and uh, and the bowels are still outside the body in that they there is a clear skin and then a clear bowel lining between uh, between this pipe so to speak and the what in uh, what is called the internal uh, milieu the le milieu intérieur, and in, in french of the body uh, so the food has to to get there food has to pass the bowel lining now that's in that sense, an other outside inside boundary uh, from the from bowels to across the bowel lining being in the blood, but then, uh, and that boundary, for instance, in when I did field work with people who are really very old and on the verge of dying, that it may happen that they can still swallow, but they can no longer absorb most of the foodstuff in, in their bowels. Now you you could think, okay, food is inside the body once it's in the bloodstream, but that's not the case either. For people who have diabetes have the problem that there can be, say, sugar in their bloodstream, but their cells are no longer able to uh, use that sugar because the sugar cannot cross the cell wall. So there's another wall. It's the wall of the cell, and that's another outside-inside system. Because food is only in the cell if, in one way or another, it can cross the cell uh, uh, wall. And uh, without that, uh, there is no—how uh, uh, to say—it's it? not possible to uh, use sugar to burn it and to to use it to uh, uh, contract muscles and and do and do other things. So yes, there are all these insights outside, but that's not a debate because nobody who is working on any of these situations will say that the others are wrong the others have another concern
0: yeah so so for me the, the reading all this was was really uh, uh, striking <laughs> uh, first because of of course it, it leads to the to to realize that who I am and where I end mm-hmm. or rather begin mm-hmm is not clear at all. No. And secondly, how to conceive this line or barrier or border is, as you just said, a a matter of perspective. So... No,
1: I didn't say perspective. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can really understand that that's what you would think, so uh, don't get me wrong. But it's not from how you look, it's from what you're doing, it's from the practice you're involved
0: in. Yeah.
1: and 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 this is rather important to me it, this is what i worked on earlier uh this is the sort of the central concern of the book i wrote about knowledge in the medical system the dominant idea in in western knowledge is indeed that there is one object and you can mm-hmm. look look you can stand around it mm-hmm. and then everybody who stands around it has a different perspective mm-hmm. a- and you could say a painter sees it differently from a from somebody who is a baker or a cook and sees it differently from uh the teacher, etc. And they would all have a different perspective on the one object. Now, my storyline here is different is to say no, there is not one object everybody looks at differently. There are different practices in which an object emerges to be something different. So like like I said before, in a trying to get food to your mouth practice, mm-hmm the inside of the body is the mouth mm-hmm. in a trying to swallow practice. Mm-hmm. The inside of the body is beyond having swallowed in a trying to absorb food practice, so to speak, where in a practice where what matters is what is the, uh, is the body able to absorb across the bowel lining? The bowel lining is the boundary. So this is not one object, one boundary of the body that people have different perspectives on, but it's really different boundaries of the body that matter in different ways, and, and, okay, and that so, are relevant yeah. to different practices.
0: Yeah, and and the, the the term of perspective maybe too much emphasizes the the perceiving subject again, yes. in opposition to a practice which involves all kinds of things and doings. And okay, yeah, I can I can I can see. Yeah,
1: perspective yeah. is a visual metaphor, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, for somebody who's trying to take things from the eating side, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not bound to go with visual metaphors, but to really mm-hmm. think with practice, practice orientations. hmm
0: hmm And and the other thing thing that that uh, was interesting for me while you spoke that uh, you said that one you um, you again get rid of the stuff you've uh, eaten. Mm-hmm. You, you said something like, who, uh, who knows uh, where, where this goes, but mm-hmm. actually you, you do know because you did empirical research in uh, wastewater treatment mm-hmm. uh, facilities. And um, this also was um, uh, very interesting for me because it it um, encouraged me to, to think, where am I? I really mm-hmm. or where, where are parts of my body now in the world mm-hmm. can you maybe expand a little bit on on this
1: yes so we just said it's not very clear where the body starts mm-hmm. uh, and it's in slightly different but similar ways not very clear where the body ends and when it when something is my body so if you have a health problem and you're asked to uh, give some urine because they want to diagnose you on on stuff that is in your urine. You put your urine in a little bottle or a, a pot and your name goes on it. So then that particular urine is still you uh, because it is is uh, carrying information about you and it's considered to be you. Your name will be on it. However, if you go to a toilet in a place where there's a sewage system, you flush the toilet, and you don't consider it, the urine, to be you. I mean, and, this, and the same goes for features. So, uh, And, well, people who have studied sewage systems more extensively have pointed out before that one of the disadvantages of this whole flush system that we have is that we also no longer feel responsible for it. We no longer feel connected to what we flush out. It, it, it becomes invisible and it goes under the ground. So, okay, we went, uh, uh, I, I did this not alone. I did this with a couple of my colleagues later on far more extensively. We went to uh, wastewater treatment systems. And then, uh, well, the, the different remnants of different bodies that are and are no longer those bodies uh, are together there and, and get transformed. Uh, I mean, they're all kind of sieving systems and then they are, the bacteria that are in them are also used to uh, downgrade the organic materials there. And yeah, then stuff keeps flushing out. One of the big problems in wastewater treatment at the moment is that it was made to dissolve uh, or not to dissolve, but to break down organic materials so that you don't have algae overflow in, in the water further downstream, but it has not been made to um, Take out all kind of medication that is a, is an added layer to all of this, medication that people have swallowed and that of which remnants of it, of those medication they they excrete and that too gets into our waterways into into our systems. So yeah, my being in that sense is extended way beyond me. So I do know up to the wastewater treatment system, but not beyond that because what what flows out of there. Well, it's partly traceable. I mean, the the bacteria that die in that whole system get burned, and then the ashes go into the building of roads. So my body is spread partly into the underlayer of the building of roads. Uh, that's that's indeed. So we're still talking about the chapter on being. That's really a dispersed type of being. Uh, I mean, the the image of the. Isolated individual that liberalism has, has a fantasy about is really very easy to uh, to how to say that to make that image falter and to make it uh, to if you wish to critique it to critique it by by thinking about this whole eating process and this transformation that generates a far more an idea of a far more open spread out transformative body than the body within the skin.
0: So for me, all this was very uh, striking, but I think maybe a few listeners now think, well, why should I care? Why should I care about where my uh, uh, parts of my body go after I flush down the toilet? Um, What would you say apart from or, or is was that already the answer you just gave? The, the that it is possible to critique or change or transform um, dominant uh, images of uh, the individual and the self. Or what, what do you what do you respond to to somebody who now listens and think well, the, the eating of I thought about eating quite differently than, than wh- where my body goes after I flush down the toilet.
1: Oh, now you asked three questions. So uh, let me, so- Oh, uh, apologies for no, that. that's okay. Uh, so why should you care? There, there are very many ways to uh, why people might want to care. Let's say we cannot care about everything all the time, but th- uh, there is a fairly direct material uh, material politics type of way to care. Because uh, what we flush out through our toilets uh, then enters the collective uh, ecosystem, the the milieu around us, and in as far as it's not properly cleaned again, it poisons our surroundings. It's polluting. So these there is this ecological concern. Uh, with the polluting that is generated through everything we flush out, and and that's not just our excrements; it's also indeed our medication, but also the stuff we use to clean. Now, that's not what this particular book talks about, but it is a first reason to care. The second reason to care is indeed the one you just mentioned, uh, and that's what the book is more about. And that is that if we if we realize that our book uh, this of or if we have this, if we take the image of the self in this and and what being is, uh, if we take our cues here indeed from this spread out body, we have a far more collective, spread out, intersecting way of what it is to be a, a human than if we have a, a liberal illusions about selves beneath the skin. And this doesn't only go for uh, the material stuff of eating and excreting itself, but really what it is to be in the world. Uh, so that's another reason to care. And uh, well, then again, I'm not p- saying people should care. Uh, they, they might want to think with that and it might inspire people for, for other concerns that they themselves were having with other topics. And I, I hope it would. Um, my book is not of the kind you should care. Um, but hey, look at this. What do you think? What might this mean for you?
0: Mm, this also connects uh, to uh, your way of doing research, which I found very uh, interestingly and interesting and also uh, provoking and thought-provoking. Uh, because the first chapter you call empirical philosophy, mm-hmm. and to to many people this might sound indeed as a contrast in terms, um, but can you can you give an introduction? What do you mean by doing philosophy empirically?
1: Yes, I can try. Uh, this is a difficult chapter, and people can also skip that if they don't want to read it, but. Um, you can read the being chapter which is chapter two without reading chapter one but uh, and the other way around so the idea of empirical philosophy is to it goes in several steps the, the the crucial one is to say there is a tradition in philosophy that thought that thinking can be outside of the world it can be above it it can be uh, transcendental would be the technical term and I'm of the line. Uh, of, of, among those philosophers who say well no it can't, there is always uh, thinking is always in all kind of ways part of of the rest of the world, it's, it's an element, it's always uh, imminent so to speak and there are all kind of uh, links between philosophical uh, uh, words, terms, concepts and the world that they emerge from and the worlds that they enter and Let me explain it through one of the the explanations I use in the chapter, The Exemplary Situation. I I really like that one. And uh, it was the the word, uh, the way I use the word in the book, uh, I take from Lola Nauta, who was my PhD supervisor in the 80s. And what he said is that if you read philosophers, even if they think they're transcendental, they actually always, it becomes far more easy to read them if you realize the specific empirical situation that they happen to be reflecting upon. So empirical philosophy in my books doesn't mean uh, taking reality seriously and being bound by it, but it it means read into text what they are inspired by. One of the easy examples that uh, Nauta used was if you read Sartre on The Stranger, that may seem very abstract, But if you realize that the man was sitting in a cafe in Paris watching people walking by, suddenly his theories about the strangers make a lot more sense. So that would be what Nauta called the exemplary situation that is embedded in the philosophy, whether the philosopher says so or not. I mean, the other famous example is that of uh, many more historians have written about this, about John Locke, uh, who was writing about what it is to own, about possession. And in the the exemplary situation there is that he was an English gentleman owning land in what later became the United States of America. So could one own land? And there were all kinds of theories uh, in Locke about how land can only be owned if you work it in a specific agricultural way. Now, that was to disqualify Uh, Native Americans who were living with the land in in very different ways, and to say, no, they cannot own it. Uh, Neither would they want to, but this whole whole idea of ownership is based on that empirical exemplary situation. Okay, now, once you recognize in all kinds of other philosophers that their texts have exemplary situations hidden within them, you can start to say, but then if we make new philosophy we can ex- we can make a bit more work of the exemplary situation that we want to think about and think with so rather than trying to escape exemplary situations we can play with them and work with them and and one of my sources of inspiration there is the work of Michel Serre who has done a lot of that he has been using all kind of uh, images and realities that he chews on and and works with in in his various books and and shifting around new empirical stories allows him to say new things but but he didn't work on eating so i did that bit does that make sense is that clear enough i mean
0: yeah yeah
1: um um, so you could say it's also it's a sort of heuristic it's a way of Getting, getting inspiration. It's so, and and to fall back to what we talked about earlier. In those empirical philosophy terms or exemplary situation terms, I say, well, uh, uh, all kind of ways in which we think about being have as their implied or their implicit empirical referent a neuromuscular mm-hmm. body. So mm-hmm. if I explicitly attend to an eating body. What can I shift around? What kind of new terms and new ways of understanding terms emerge from that exercise? So it's a sort of, it's in a way a serious game.
0: And and you you um, so for for the people who did not read it throughout the book, you present a short, um, f- f- well, pol- polished versions of field notes. Could I say this? Mm-hmm. So. Um, observations and descriptions of uh, practices and uh, situations you experienced Um, so would you say that these um, are your attempts of so to speak making the exemplary situations explicit
1: yes and also of generating new exemplary situations what Uh, what do
0: you mean by that generating I mean
1: uh, so these are not just situations I passively experienced. They are situations mm-hmm. I actively went to. I went to search. I, I went mm-hmm. out of my way to, to go and generate them, to, to turn them from an event into an exemplary situation, into something to chew on and, mm-hmm. and to learn from. And they're quite diverse. So that's also what eating is, does not emerge as one coherent thing from this book. Eating, just as we already talked about how eating, how the body boundaries are different in relation to different eating concerns. Eating is also something very different depending on on practices uh, where, uh, where it matters or where you go and look for it. So yes, mm-hmm. uh, I did ethnographic fieldwork in, in highly diverse situations. And by the way, I had a great grant for this whole project. So there were really wonderful good junior people working with me who also did research into eating for their own concerns in their own questions so and we had an ongoing conversation about all this research so i took inspiration from their research as well and learned a lot from them about what eating can be in in all kind of empirical settings plus of course we read lots of books of yet other authors who study eating in in other settings Uh, so in, a, in a, really, this uh, this multiplicity of versions of eating was a way to get really diverse and rich inspiration to shift the ways of thinking around.
0: Okay, so we we talked about the first chapters extensively, and <laughs> I am afraid we will not have time to to touch upon the the following chapters in in such detail. But I I, I would like to. Offer you the, the maybe to, to choose one more uh, chapters on on knowing doing relating uh, to to further uh, go go into them.
1: Okay, well let me let me do knowing. Then the, we keep the rest of the book in suspense. People might actually want to read it. Um, so so with knowing. Uh, one of the things that I think uh, to be a bit short about that chapter, that's really interesting about knowing uh, and taking eating as a case for that uh, traditional images of, of traditional understandings. Let me put it like that of knowing were, um, were such that it was that there was a sharp division between perception and sensation and perception was from the outside world and sensation was from the body. And then the idea was perception could really be done through seeing and hearing uh, while and those were called the distal senses while uh, smelling and tasting were the proximal senses and were not really very informative about the world and uh, touch would then be sort of an intermediate between them now I was reading upon uh, this uh, and, and you can imagine as somebody who was studying eating I was particularly interested in smelling and tasting and I was reading various people who were saying how that too could be a way of knowing the outside world and then it struck to me that then often cases they they were uh, presenting were cases where people were using smelling and eating indeed to pers- oh, smelling and tasting I'm sorry smelling and tasting to perceive but then they would spit out to keep their senses pure let's say if you do wine tasting mm. uh, you tend to spit one tends to spit out the wine so as to not to still be able to taste the next sip of wine of of the of the next glass and what is interesting is that of course if one swallows and doesn't just taste but really swallows the tasting trans or the, the swallowing the eating transforms the body and that with the wine this is very clear if you have three glasses of wine you really are not going to be subtle enough to taste the fourth one. But it's also the case with meals. If I'm very hungry at the beginning of a meal, after I've had a plateful of food, I'm not so keen to have soup again or I might just have a bit of dessert and maybe not even that, I'm no longer hungry. So the taste of what one, uh, what one tastes really changes through eating. And that then again also gives a different uh, image of what knowing could be. It's a type of knowing where the subject does not stay the same, but is transformed by the object that it knows. And the object does not stay the same either. If I eat an apple, uh, you cannot no longer know it because I have changed it. It is... It's no longer visible. It is still. It's active in my body to make me perky and allow me to go for my walk. Uh, so both, what eating provides, is an image where knowing is not distal. It's not staying at a distance from the object of knowing, but where knowing is transforming the object and being transformed by it. So that that's uh, a rather different way of imagining knowledge. Than, than the classical one uh, where you could say that the exemplary situation in the classical one is staring at a painting mm. uh, and you're not supposed to take out uh, your uh, your own color uh, colouring stuff and change the painting, but you stare at the painting with your hands on your back. While the image of knowing in relation to eating is uh Uh, While eating, so to speak, allows us to articulate a a mode of knowing where everything transforms in the process of knowing and transforming. They they are no longer, uh, it's no longer possible to disentangle them.
0: And would you say these two images of knowing can be in conversation with each other or can, would you say it is possible to transfer the the knowing image from eating to the situation of uh, watching a picture?
1: Well, I would rather say uh, what this particular book does is add, is addition. So I add right. further understandings of being, knowing, doing and relating. And I'm not critiquing. I'm not saying what has been done so far is all wrong and now come me and I'm really knowing how it is, uh, how it really is. So, I mean, this, this dispute model of doing theory I really dislike. I think uh, it's what, what I'm trying to do here is rather add new models so that others who, who read these things can think through in the situations they want to understand or the situations they grapple with what might be a good way of handling that what might serve them what might or what the effect of different ways of understanding might be so some situations may call for the staring mode of knowing and other situations you may think but wait a minute what if we think about this in a transformative mode of knowing so in that sense i think the theoretical repertoires are rather like tools and if in some cases, I mean this is Foucauldian thought, but if in some cases you want to hammer, in other cases you want to sue, in other cases you want to paint, and I don't think we need a kind of theoretical uh, imagination where where there is only one and one mm. big truth. It's a it's that's a very uh, sad uh, mono mono idea, uh, and rather than having such a Mono philosophy, I think it's far more interesting to have rich repertoires and lots of them that and uh, the ability to move between them and to play with them.
0: But do we need uh, one i mean that's that's an open question. Uh, do we need one that tells us how um, hammering and suing hangs together, or rather when to hammer or when to sue uh, do you
1: need that? Uh, <laughs>
0: I don't know. <laughs> it's a question I wrestle with a lot.
1: <laughs> I, I don't particularly like uh, philosophical theories that are affirmative and tell me what to do. or And I don't want to write theory that tells other people what to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that kind of normative repertoire, where the normative takes on the shape of this is how it should be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's very helpful uh, because situations are always more specific and it, it's far more, um, uh, how to say that, it, I, I like the inspiration over the rule and, uh, and a sort of versatility over uh, standards. Mm. In mm. when it when it comes to theorizing and when it comes to doing writing books or, or thinking about the world, because that kind of false handholds—well, I already say false handholds. Handholds tend to be false because you always have to look at the specificity of a situation, and it's always ri- richer than what somebody from a distance could tell you. You should do.
0: Yeah right. Maybe I'm I'm too much an educationalist for for letting go the <laughs> normativity altogether. <laughs> because of course, I, I mean, I constantly ask my. Um, I, I don't want to talk too much about my yep. own questions, yeah. but but yeah. They, they they are there. Uh, I mean, th- th- p- people tend to want something from theory that offers a kind of handhold.
1: So. Yeah, many people do. It's how they have been taught theory is. Mm, But uh, maybe growing up is not needing that.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: And maybe uh, if you think about inspiration rather than handholds, that things become more interesting, huh?
0: Yeah, of course handholds can be also very inspiring and the other way around you can be inspired without handholds. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah I, can, I can see where you're going. <laughs> okay, Annemarie, we've taken up a lot of your time. so my, my last question is what are you currently working on?
1: Yeah, I'm currently I have moved on from eating to cleaning. Oh. Um, and I'm working on the question: What is clean, and how are various versions of clean done in practices? Uh, for and for instance, to, to give a small example, last year when uh, the the COVID epidemic or pandemic was starting to rage, uh, we were very concerned. I, I'm working on this with others about the way that hygienic clean. Is really celebrated everywhere, and everybody was using face mm-hmm. face masks, throwaway face masks, and all kind of nasty stuff to clean their hands, and the so that the hygienic clean was celebrated, but pollution was generated. So the world is, has been made a lot more unclean in terms of the huge amounts of plastic and uh, and alcohol and other uh, nasty stuff that has been thrown out into the world, and Pollution is, of course, a long-term uncleanliness mm. uh, that um, uh, that is how to say this that suffers so, or, or that is generated to celebrate hygienic cleanliness. So so we're working on all these variants of clean and how they're done in different places and how they're um, undone as well. And we do that also as a case of what it is to, because again, it's empirical philosophy. Again, just like with eating, I'm not just eating and interested in eating, but this time it's not just interested in clean. It's also in the question, what is it to value? What is it to appreciate? What is it to say something good? And that aligns with this normativity question we were just talking about. What are other ways of relating to goods and bads than the being normative and setting rules Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's a theoretical question this time about valuing and the empirical case is that of cleaning in all kind of again fairly mundane settings in mundane to me mundane the surroundings where I live.
0: That sounds very interesting Uh, and indeed I can see many connections uh, to questions we've talked about today Uh, thank you very much for joining me on the New Books Network
1: Thank you.